kind of place Acts chapter 14. Last week, Paul was in um, Pisidian Antioch. And this week, he starts out in Iconium and travels throughout this region. And just to kind of give you a sense of the people that he was talking to, he was traveling around in the area that we know as, or maybe we don't know, but it's the area of Galatia. Um, So if you think about um, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, or to the church in Galatia, which was a region, it wasn't just a city, it was a a region, Um, Paul, years later, is writing to these people. Um, He's writing to these people that we meet today in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, Paul goes, as was his custom, into the Jewish synagogue, and he shares the um, word of God. He preaches, and it says that he preaches so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Um, But there's a pattern that we've seen in Acts where the Jews have become, they become jealous. Um, Some of those in authority become jealous. And so it says, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so Paul and Barnabas, they continue to preach, but they're being met with resistance. And we see here at the beginning of Acts chapter 14 that a plot is developing. Um, Some of the Gentiles and some of the Jews come up with a plot that they are going to stone Paul and Barnabas. They're going to get rid of them. Um, They've had enough. Does it sound familiar? I mean, Saul was the one, who we now know as Paul, that was involved in stoning Stephen. And here the tables have been flipped, and a plot is hatched to stone Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and and Barnabas, they get wind of this plot. And rather than staying there and creating difficulty for the, the new converts and the people in that area, in Iconium, they decide to leave. And so they flee to the safety of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. So they're still in this region of Galatia, but they're, they're fleeing out of Iconium. And when they get to Lystra, they meet a man who's lame. He's never walked. He's been lame from birth. And Paul looks at him, and there's something about him. Paul is able to tell that he has the faith to be healed. And so Paul heals him. Well, that really gets people's attention. And so all of these, these people in, in Lystra um, who worship Zeus and Hermes, um, they, including the priest um, of, of Zeus, um, the priest of Zeus is like, oh my goodness, you know, Zeus and, and Hermes have come down to us. They're here in human form because here this man who's never walked is healed. And so he brings bulls and he brings rees and they're preparing to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. It's kind of funny because, you know, they see Barnabas, who's kind of the silent one. They see him as being Zeus, you know, the main god. If you, if you remember back to your Roman and Greek mythology, he's kind of the big, the big guy, the main god. And they see Hermes as Paul, as Zeus's messenger. He's the one that's, that's doing the talking. He's the spokesperson. Barnabas is just kind of standing there silent, so he must be Zeus. So they're preparing to sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice 
to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are distraught. They tear their clothes and they rush out into the crowd and urge them to stop. You know, you don't know what you're doing. And you know, this is what we urge you to do. We urge you to turn from these worthless things. We urge you to turn from Zeus and Hermes to the living God. We're only men. We're not gods. We're only men. Um, but we speak on behalf of the living God. And we've come to tell you the good news of the living God, how he's shown you mercy and he's shown you kindness. All these years when you thought it was Zeus, it's really been the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so they're just, they're just holding on. And, you know, there's all this stuff is going on in the crowd and, you know, the, the, the um, priest is there and he's still threatening to, you know, to slit this bull's throat, you know, and, and, Paul and Paul and Barnabas are just holding on, just trying to keep them from sacrificing to them. And then all of a sudden, the tables flip. And you know who shows up? Some of those people back from Iconium in Antioch that were trying to stone Paul and Barnabas. And they begin speaking to this crowd, this crowd that's wild with excitement, that's ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And it changes on a dime. And they stone Paul. And they think he's dead. They drag him outside the city. They think he's dead. And it tells us the disciples gather around Paul. And guess what? He gets up goes back into the city. Well, you know, that's probably not the best place for them to stay at that point. So they get up the next morning and they make their way out and they leave and they go to a place called Derby. And all we know about this place called Derby in this passage is it says that they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They flee Lystra and they go to Derby, and they preach the gospel, and they win a large number of disciples. Now, you would think if you won a large number of disciples in a certain place, that you might settle down and you might stay there for a while. And we're not told exactly how much time passes. It might have been days, it might have been weeks, it might have been months, we don't know. But all that we know is that after preaching in Derby. It says, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. What do they do? But they go back to the place where they were stoned. They go back to the place where they were persecuted. And it says that they return, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. That word, remain true. It's this idea of staying in a place, abiding in a place, not moving, but staying in that place. Staying in a place of trust and faith and dependence on Christ. 
they urge those that have seen them persecuted to remain true to the faith, to stay in that place, that spiritual place of trust and of faith. And then they go on and they say this. This is in quotes. Paul says, we must go through, and Barnabas says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Keep in mind who they're saying this to. They're saying this to people that have watched them be stoned. They're saying this to people who have watched them be heckled. They're saying this to people who have watched them flee for their lives. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Looking at that word hardships, you know, what does it mean? When you don't know what a word means, you look at how it's used. And if we look at how that word hardships is used in other places in the, in the New Testament, um, I checked, I came out with, I, I printed, a, printed a list of words that was like two and a half pages long. There are a lot of places where the word, that word hardships in the Greek is used um, throughout, throughout the New Testament. Um, but there's just a couple that I want to I point out to us. Um, Jesus uses the word hardships. In John chapter 16, Jesus, in his final words to his disciples, he says this. He says, All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. He's trying to prepare them. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows there are going to be hardships. He knows there are hard times coming. And he's trying to prepare them. He says, all of this I have told you so that you will not fall away, so that you will persevere. And he goes on and he shares. And he, he, he shares the analogy of a woman in labor a woman giving birth, and he says this. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish. It's that word anguish that's the word for hardships. It's the same word that Paul uses for hardships. She forgets her anguish. She forgets her labor pain. She forgets the pressure. She forgets the pain because of her joy that a child is born into the world. He goes on and says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Jesus warns his disciples, there is a time of trouble coming. There is a time of anguish coming. There is a time of incredible pressure coming but stay in that place of faith and trust. Stay in that place of faith and trust. You know, years later, Paul and Barnabas stay in that place of faith and trust. Jesus goes on in, in verse 32 of chapter 16. He says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home, 
You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. There's that word again. It's that trouble, that word trouble or hardship, pressure, difficulty, pain. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have pressure. And Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There is hope. Trouble persecution, pressure, hard times are to be expected, but they're not the last word. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So where else is this word trouble or pressure or hardship used? Another place it's used is, is by Paul in 2 Corinthians, and in the passage that, that I read this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And at the end of that passage, Paul says this. He says, For our light and momentary troubles, there's that word, troubles, hardship, pressures. For our light and momentary troubles, pressures, hardships, persecutions, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, because they're achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, how often when we're in life, when we feel pressure, when we're up against hardships, when we're up against difficulties, how often do we just get tunnel vision? Anybody? You know, it's so easy for us just to focus in on that difficulty or that pressure or that stressor. You know, if I can just, you know, get past this Friday. You know, if I can get just get through that, that thing at work. You know, if I... If, you know, so-and-so can just get feeling better. You know, if I would just have a different job, different house, you know, then it'll all be better. That's not the point, is it? For our light and momentary troubles are not pointless. They're not wasted. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, when the baby is born, the mother forgets her labor pains to a certain extent, right? I mean, you kind of remember, but I mean, you remember with joy, you know, it's, it's not like you're focused on them anymore. You're not in that place of tunnel vision. If I can just get through this next contraction. No, that's gone, that's forgotten. You're in a place of joy. The baby is in your arms. The baby's been born, and it was all worth it, right? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but is what is unseen, since what is seen 
that thing we're focusing on because of our tunnel vision. That's not the main thing. That's not what we're called to focus on. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen, that thing that we're so often focused, tend to focus on, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That thing we're focusing on, that's not the main thing. But God is using it. He's using it to form us and to shape us. God forms us and shapes us, not in spite, not, you know, out here someplace, in some area separate from ourselves. He forms us in the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the pressures, in the midst of the hard things in life. God forms us. That's where he forms us. Let's go back to our passage, Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas say, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed leaders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly who Paul and Barnabas commit to the Lord. We don't know if it's if it's the, um, the elders or if it's the people. I have a feeling it was everybody. It was the elders and the people. Paul and Barnabas commit them to the Lord. And this, this word commit, it's the idea of, um, have you ever served somebody food? And you, you put down a plate in front of them, you know, whether it's in a restaurant or whether it's a loved one, it doesn't always work with kids, but you're pretty sure, especially if it's something that they like, that they're going to pick up their fork and they're going to pick up their spoon and they're going to eat it, right? They're going to receive it. They're going to take it inside of themselves. This word that is, is used here for commit, it's the idea of taking. It's not, it, it has multiple meanings, but if it's the idea of, you know, taking a meal and putting it in front of somebody, taking something and putting it in front of them with confidence that the person that you're putting it in front of will receive it. So when Jesus prays at the feeding of the 5,000 and he puts the food in front of them, the people eat, right? He expected that they were going to eat. He was confident that they were hungry and they were going to eat. He places the food in front of them. It's this idea of Paul and Barnabas, they pray and fast and they commit these people to the Lord. They commit, they place these people in front of the Lord, um, not with the expectation that God's going to eat them. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying but with the expectation that they will be received. You understand what I'm saying? There's, there's just this, this expectation and this confidence that what they place in front of God 
the people that they place in front of God, that God will receive, that he will watch out for, that he will take care of, that they can entrust these people that they've grown to love, that they have risked their lives for, that they can place them in front of God, and God will guard them and guide them and care for them. Because you know what the next thing they do is? They leave. Paul and Barnabas don't stay. They leave. They go on. They have other places to go, other people to preach to, other people to talk to. So they place them in God's hands. They entrust them to God. It's the same word that is used when Jesus says, into my hands I commit my spirit. When he says that to the Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I place myself, God, in trust, in faith that you will receive me. That same, that same word of confidence. So, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed leaders for them in each church and with faith, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust, in whom they had put their faith, in whom they had believed in the Lord. So here's um, some questions. What pressure or hardship are you facing? So just take a minute just to get that, just to focus on something. There's probably something. If there's not, that's fine. There will be something, right? In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. What pressure or hardship are you facing? Okay, you got it? All right, here's the next thing. Here's the next question. How might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to enter into or stay in a place of trust and faith in the midst of that hardship or pressure? How might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to enter into or stay in a place of trust and faith in the midst of that hardship or pressure? Because when we're in the midst of the hardship or pressure, it's so easy to get tunnel vision. It's so easy not to stay in that place of trust and faith. It's so easy to, you know, look on what is right around us rather than on focusing on what is unseen. But the invitation is to focus on what is unseen. The in invitation is to stay in that place of trust and faith. All right, and then here's the third one. Who is the Holy Spirit inviting you or us to place before him? Are there people today that are on your heart? Give them to God. It's the best thing we can do. Give them to God. Who is God, who is the Holy Spirit inviting you to place before God with confidence that he will receive them. Who is the Holy Spirit inviting you to place before him? And then I want to just leave us with this thought. What if the purpose of our lives, you can go ahead and put that next slide up there. What if the purpose of our lives is more than and different 
from what we think? What if the purpose of our lives is that we are united with Christ? What if the purpose of all the hardships is that we are united with Christ and that others are united with Christ, that we're brought into God's community, God's family? What, are the purpose, what if the purpose of our lives is, is not success, as we think of success? What if it's not avoiding discomfort? We don't like to be uncomfortable, do we? But what if the purpose of our lives is more than and different from what we think? What if the purpose of our lives is that we are united with Christ and that we stay in that place? so that God can continue to work in us and shape us and heal us and make us whole.